My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode 10 of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. If you're listening to this episode on any public podcasting service, you might be saying, wait a minute, episode 10? What happened to episode 9? The last one to appear in my feed was episode 8. Episode 9, which was released last week, is a bonus episode exclusive to supporters of the podcast. It covers the often contentious dynamic between the focus of this series, Marcus Aurelius, and his lower-class subjects. We cover their disdain for his high-minded philosophy, and his qualms over their obsession with gladiatorial matches and chariot races while the Empire was drowning in plague and war. We also talk about how Marcus gradually won over his subjects without betraying his insistence on speaking, acting, and thinking in accordance with Stoic virtue. We also discuss how Marcus attempted to improve the Roman legal code to make it more just for his most vulnerable subjects, and how he dealt with the thorny problem of slavery in the empire. He was probably just one of a handful of Romans with major qualms about slavery, and lacking the support to make major reforms in this area, he had to come up with some indirect ways to strike a blow against the institution, which was a bedrock element of Roman society. If you want to listen to that episode, it's not too late. If you're willing to support the podcast with a $4 monthly donation, you'll get immediate access. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. And thank you for your support. It's what's keeping this show going. Today's episode will pick up the narrative after the rebellion of Avidius Cassius and Marcus's tour of the eastern provinces with his heir, Commodus. Episode 10. Finishing what he started. Eight, 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 eight. The chanting crowd of Romans met Marcus Aurelius and his 15-year-old son, Commodus, when they entered the capital city in the fall of 176 AD. As was Marcus's style, there was none of the pomp and ceremony past emperors had adopted when returning to Rome after long trips abroad. But even the casual procession of Marcus's entourage quickly attracted attention. The gathering crowd didn't want to cheer Marcus for blunting the attacks of the Germans and Sarmatians who'd raided deep into the empire. They didn't offer gratitude for his many years of prudent leadership. They didn't care that he'd navigated the state through a fiscal crisis brought on by the twin troubles of plague and war, and responded to a rebellion against him not with the purges and massacres that many past emperors had adopted but blanket amnesty and forgiveness, even for those closest to the top. No, the people seemed little interested in this. Instead, they were letting it be known that they wanted money. Eight gold pieces, to be exact, or 800 sesterces, for the eight long years that he'd been absent, fighting on the northern frontier and then touring the eastern provinces. This, they called out to him in ever-gathering numbers, was long the custom when an emperor had been absent from the capital for long periods, and their due as Roman citizens. A very rough modern equivalency of value would be somewhere in the ballpark of $2,000 per free male citizen. 
Although Rome's population had been significantly reduced by the plague, and much of the population were not free males eligible for this gift, it certainly represented a sum equivalent to hundreds of millions of dollars in modern equivalency. It was a lot of money for a cash-strapped emperor, and the growing mob chanting for it must have been intimidating. It's easy to see why prior emperors had usually given in to such demands. As we discussed in episode 9, Marcus had resisted his troops' justified call for a bonus after several significant victories a few years prior because the treasury was empty. But with the end of that crisis and the plague showing up less and less, Marcus apparently had enough money to offer a gift to his people, if he so chose. Marcus had already demonstrated that he had a backbone and was not afraid to stand up to clamoring citizens or even an armed legion if he thought it was in the best interests of the empire. He would not be bullied by inferences of violence, and he didn't particularly care what his citizens thought of him or worry over if they'd remember him benevolently after his death, so long as he was satisfied that he was acting with virtue. Marcus asks himself in his notebook if those few ancients whose fame and popularity had endured through to his time had been better than the unknown or unpopular but virtuous individuals who's existed alongside of them. His verdict, quote, Alexander and Caesar and Pompey, compared to Diogenes, Heraclitus, and Socrates, the philosophers knew the what, the why, and the how. Their minds were their own. The others, nothing but anxiety and enslavement. Unquote. Marcus later re reminds himself of, quote, the tranquility that comes when you stop caring what they say or think or do. Only what you do, unquote. Marcus wasn't a miser for the sake of stinginess, nor opposed to giving his people a gift after more than a decade of hardship, but he decided that if he was going to give out some cash, he would kill two birds with one stone. He wanted his subjects to embrace his son as their next emperor, despite his young age. After the rebellion of Avidius Cassius, which had resulted in part from Marcus not having a successor old enough to succeed him lined up, despite several severe illnesses almost killing Marcus, it became critical to let it be known that Commodus was a capable adult who already held the reins of power. With all his other heirs dead, whatever personal qualms Marcus had over Commodus's conduct were set aside for the sake of stability, and Mark Commodus was proclaimed his co-emperor, although a subordinate one, receiving all the powers that Lucius Verus once possessed. Marcus would give out the 800 sesterces to each of his citizens in Rome, but wrapped it up in his people's celebration of their new co-emperor, gifting it as part of celebratory feasting and toasts to his son's long health and future brilliance. With the succession secured, Marcus settled back in at home in the imperial palace in his villas outside the city, and the 55-year-old enjoyed some of the only peaceful years he'd known since his ascension to the throne 15 years prior. He was gaunt, but he'd survived severe illnesses and the brutal winters of the north. Coming home to the warmer fall air of Italy must have seemed a pleasant respite. He was able to start a modest building program in Rome and funded the complete reconstruction of the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor, which had been leveled by an earthquake. 
He also began some other minor infrastructure projects and repair jobs around the provinces as funds allowed. The first time there'd been any slack in the budget for public work since the beginning of the Parthian War. It was after his return to the city in 176 that the famous equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius, which is now on display at the Capitoline Museum in Rome, was erected in the Roman Forum. Marcus decided to buck the trend of similar statues emperors had erected of themselves, particularly equestrian statues. Marcus was a successful general at this point, and no one would have balked if he had himself depicted wearing armor and brandishing weapons in the normal imperial style. But instead, we see Marcus adorned in a simple tunic and cloak, his arms stretched out toward onlookers from his mount. He looks tired, but there's no grimace on his face. It seems that he was keen to betray himself as a bringer of peace and prosperity rather than as a military hero. That he was trying to build a world where emperors didn't need to stand watch with a sword in hand. Interestingly, this is the only bronze statue of a pre-Christian pagan Roman emperor to have survived the Middle Ages intact, likely because people thought the statue depicted the Christianizing Emperor Constantine the Great. If you'd like to see the statue, I'll post a picture of it along with some gold coins Marcus gave out to his people to celebrate the ascension of Commodus at patreon.com slash theturningwheel, and no, you don't need to be a supporter to view those images. We're told that Marcus had a group of philosophically inclined friends who met regularly in Rome around this time, and he apparently was able to relax and spend some time with them. It was also during this period that Marcus made a number of legal reforms discussed in episode 9. But, as the months went by and dispatches continued to come in, Marcus started to realize that his peace was not to last. Despite putting several able commanders in charge of the Danubian frontier, the German tribes were once again restive and began breaking their agreements with Rome and raiding imperial territory. The hasty, overly generous peace deals Marcus had been forced to sign with the Germans due to Avidius Cassius' rebellion were coming back to haunt him. The massive defeats Marcus dealt the Germans during the First Marcomannic War hadn't been for naught, though. Tens of thousands of their best warriors had been slaughtered or captured as slaves, and more civilians had been killed or driven off their lands. As a result, the Germans now refused to fight pitched battles against the Roman armies led by local governors. Instead, they started practicing a kind of guerrilla warfare. The Marcomanni also drew in some smaller Germanic tribes that had previously remained aloof from the First War and brought them into the fray, further boosting their numbers. Marcus may have erected a statue representing himself as a peaceful emperor, but it was his skill as a commander-in-chief that fate seemed determined to demand of him, and he began making preparations to head to the front. Although our sources give us no hint that Marcus displayed any great anger or despair over the situation, it seems like this renewal of hostilities was something of a turning point for him. It may have been that this last betrayal convinced him that leniency was not a tactic that would ever bear fruit with the Germans, and they would have to be so thoroughly beaten down that they could never pose a threat to Rome again. 
The titles Germanicus and Sarmaticus, which the Senate conferred on Marcus after his earlier victories in the first Marcomannic War, disappear from coins issued in 177, perhaps indicating that Marcus felt that in light of the renewed rating, he hadn't really ended the conflict and so didn't deserve the titles. By 178 AD, Marcus was back in Germany in overall command of a new war effort. He was now 58, and his health was even worse than it had been during the last war. It's clear that he could have stayed in Rome and sent someone else to the front, but he seemed determined to end the German threat once and for all, and he appeared willing to sell what little was left of his health to do it. What's more, Marcus and his senior commanders drew up a plan that seems to modern eyes to look a little... overly ambitious. A less generous interpretation was that it was crazy. They were determined to not only bring the Germans and Sarmatians to heel, but also to annex two huge chunks of their territory north of the Danube, to be called Marcomania, which covered the territory of modern Slovakia and the Czech Republic, and Sarmatia, which would occupy the large salient of land between Roman Dacia and Pannonia in what is today Hungary and Serbia. The acquisition of Sarmatia made some strategic sense, but these huge new acquisitions had no natural barriers like rivers or mountains that could be used to protect them, and there were already large tracts of unused land inside the empire due to the high death toll of the plague, so finding new loyal settlers would not be easy. It's unclear what Marcus and his commanders saw that we can't today, but with apparent confidence, Marcus once again gathered his well-seasoned officer corps and advisors. In comparison to the barely-trained, plague-decimated army he'd led north during his first campaign, he now had a battle-hardened force to take into the fray. Upon reaching the Danube, Marcus relied on a divide-and-rule strategy. I earlier mentioned that Marcus intended to conquer Sarmatia, but weirdly the Sarmatians, the fierce horse warriors who had done so much damage to Rome during the earlier conflict, had so far refused to betray their treaty with Marcus and did not join the German raids. It's possible Marcus felt confident that they would eventually betray him anyway. But he did want to keep the Sarmatians out of the war until he'd had a chance to deal with the Germans, so Marcus sweetened the pot further with promises of annual subsidies and free access through parts of Dacia for the horsemen. The Sarmatians promised to stay out of the war and even offered to send a cavalry force to help the emperor wage war against the Germans, which he turned down. Marcus then personally led a lightning campaign against the Germanic Corini tribe, which crushed them before they could be reinforced by their allies. Elsewhere in southern Germania, Marcus's generals were busy. The Germans refused to fight the Romans in a pitched battle and continued their guerrilla campaign. The Romans responded by occupying and garrisoning much of the alliance's territory, with 40,000 legionnaires stationed in stone-built forts and watchtowers that were custom-built for the job. Cassius Dio tells us that the back-and-forth fighting was brutal, but the Germans were on the losing end of it. He writes, quote, The Romans would not allow them to pasture their flocks, till the soil, or do anything else in security, but kept receiving deserters from the enemy's ranks and captives from their own. Unquote. 
The Aurelian Column, still visible in Rome, shows scenes of Romans decapitating captured Germans and the weeping of women. Dio says Marcus pitied the Germans, but he'd apparently been burned by them too many times to trust them again, and he would not back down. Apparently, after so many betrayals, he intended to, as the historian Tacitus had said of earlier Roman strategy, quote, make a desert and call it peace, unquote. The strategy began to bear fruit, and the Quadi, the, largest, the second largest tribe of remaining in the German alliance, saw the writing on the wall. They attempted to flee out of their traditional territory to link up with their distantly related kinsmen further north, out of reach of the Romans. But Marcus had no intention of letting his enemy slip away to harass his people another day. He also may have believed ruling a land filled with a thoroughly defeated enemy was better than a totally empty wasteland. Marcus ordered a Roman army to block the Quadi's escape, which they succeeded in doing. The Germans now became desperate. They'd been largely unable to plant any crops, trade had been cut off, and it was hard to see a path forward with so much of their land occupied by the Romans, who would emerge from their fortresses whenever the Germans showed themselves. Somehow, the remainder of the Confederacy induced the Roxolani, a horse people of the steppe related to the Sarmatians, to come to their aid, and a large horse army crossed through Dacia to link up with the Germans. With these reinforcements, the alliance put together one last army in 179 AD, and in a day-long battle, the Romans and the Germans fought it out. The casualties were large, but at the end of the day, the Romans surrounded the shattered Confederate army, capturing 40,000 prisoners, effectively ending all resistance to the occupation. It became immediately clear that the war was over in all but name. Some of the tribes surrendered soon after the battle, but others fled to their more remote lands, intent to keep fighting their guerrilla war on a smaller scale. Plans were made to finish off these last holdouts the following spring. Marcus's army wintered at Trenson in southern Slovakia, about a hundred miles from the old German border on the Danube. We're told the army's spirits were high. They'd finally crushed the Germans who had plagued them for so long. It's one of the tragedies of Marcus's reign that his boldest actions kept getting interrupted by plagues, by rebellions, and by enemies who just refused to stay conquered. Fate would pull this card on Marcus one last time. Now it would be death itself that interrupted the emperor's plans. The Antonine Plague, which had killed so many of his people, had finally caught up to him. According to the Augustan history, as his final days approached, Marcus sent for Commodus, telling his son that he had to finish off the Germans. He insisted that if he did not obey his last wishes, he would be betraying not only him, but all of Rome. Commodus equivocated, saying that he would do what he could, but that his own health had to be the primary consideration, noting that the plague was contagious. We're told he said to his father, quote, a dead man can achieve nothing, unquote. Marcus was a man of self-reflection, which becomes obvious to anyone who's read his notebook. But it's unclear what, as his life slipped away, Marcus may have made of the sum of his existence, or these last words from his son, who, it must have seemed obvious, seemed intent on shirking his duty to finish off the war. 
Somewhere in his final years, Marcus made this entry into his journal. Quote, Your days are numbered. Use them to throw open the windows of your soul to the sun. If you do not, the sun will soon set, and you with it. Unquote. The emperor was often critical of himself, and ever at war with his faults and failings, but looking back at his record, it's hard to imagine that he fell short of his own stated goal to live with virtue in, a, in accordance with nature. While he may have wanted to achieve more, he embodied stoic preference for virtue and intention over outcome. No matter how many times fate knocked him down, he kept getting back up. Perhaps, in thinking over his life in his final hours, he was reminded of a quote by one of his favorite philosophers, Epictetus. Quote, There is only one way to happiness, and that is to cease worrying about things which are beyond your power of will. Unquote. Marcus had never stopped exercising his will in the face of his troubles, but there was nothing he could do about the plague. Now, only death awaited him, and he sunk into it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Turning Wheel. Next week, we'll be covering the reign of Commodus, whose first act as emperor may have been both a horrible insult to his father and the best thing he did during his entire reign, all rolled into one. If you've been enjoying the podcast, can you do me two favors? First, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use and write a few words about why you like it. This really helps the show to reach more people, which will play a big role in keeping it going. Second, please consider supporting the podcast financially. A number of awesome bonuses, including last week's exclusive episode for supporters, are available if you do. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. Thanks. See you next time.